Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got a great show for everybody today. We're going to be talking about a number of different biotech companies in a few different sectors. And the reason for this is we heard a bunch of news in the ophthalmology sector in the last few weeks. So I'm going to touch on Regenix Bio and I'm going to touch on Apellus. And then what I wanted to talk about is a few oncology companies that have some readouts coming in Q4 of this year. So we're going to touch on a handful of oncology companies as well. And yeah, with that, I want to thank everybody for all their support. appreciate all the engagement and all of the uh, tweets and all the likes. So please keep it up. I do appreciate it. And if there is a company or CEO that you want me to interview, uh, email their investor relations department and tell them that you'd like to see them on Breaking Biotech. And I'd be happy to consider them as a guest. So with that, let's get right into the show because I want to touch on each one of these companies and there's some nuance to each story. And the first story I want to touch on is the one announced by Regenix Bio. And what they said is that they have come to a collaboration agreement with the large pharma known as AbbVie. And in this collaboration, AbbVie and Regenix Bio are going to collaborate and share costs on additional trials of RGX314, including the planned second pivotal trial evaluating subretinal delivery for the treatment of wet AMD and future trials. So for those who don't know, and I'll get into this in a second, but Regenix Bio is a gene therapy company. They have a number of out-licensed programs as well as some in-house programs that they do. And their furthest along in-house program is RGX314, which is a gene therapy for the treatment of wet AMD. And they're probably the furthest along company in developing a treatment for wet AMD that's a gene therapy. And what they're announcing here is that AbbVie and them have come to this agreement in order to share the costs of the future trials that RGX314 are going to have to go through in order to seek that approval. They also mention here that AbbVie will lead the clinical development and commercialization of RGX314 globally, and Regenix Bio shall participate in the U.S. commercialization efforts. So AbbVie is a large pharma company, and here what it seems like is like AbbVie is going to have the bulk of the effort to develop and commercialize RGX314 outside of the U.S., which makes sense since they've already got these relationships, given that they already have a lot of um, ophthalmology type treatments, whereas Regenix Bio is going to do much more of the, the local domestic U.S. commercialization efforts, which is fine, although they don't have a ton of resources commercially yet, so hopefully they can use AbbVie and leverage their resources in some capacity to have a successful launch in the U.S. This is years down the road, though, so I don't think for our purposes, it matters too much how this commercialization effort is going to go. In the short term, the nature of the deal is such that Regenix Bio is going to receive $370 million as an upfront payment, with the potential to receive up to $1.38 billion in additional development, regulatory, and commercial milestones. So this collaboration, I think, is super bullish for Regenix Bio, and I'm going to touch on some of the readouts for which I took a position in Regenix Bio, and then I'll talk about what I think that there might be going on behind the scenes here. So Regenix Bio, for those who don't know, it's around a $1.8 billion market cap company now after the agreement was announced, and it was sitting probably at like $1.3 beforehand. 
They have a net loss of around $60 million per quarter because they have a pretty extensive pipeline. They do have a pretty decent cash position though, $430 million in current assets as of Q2 and around $90 million of liabilities as of Q2. And like I mentioned, RGX314 is their furthest along internal program. And the reason why I took a position in this company was for the upcoming readouts we're gonna see in their wet AMD and diabetic retinopathy uh, programs, but specifically their superchoroidal delivery, which I think is going to show uh, very positive data. Up to now, we've only seen the subretinal delivery of RGX314, and the data's been positive, but there's a lot of complications associated with subretinal delivery. To overcome these issues, Regenix Bio have partnered with a company called Clearside Biosciences, which developed this superchoroidal microinjector that make it very easy to inject RGX314 in this manner, but it will allow the molecule to go to the back of the eye and transduce those cells, hopefully allowing for a good enough efficacy for them to see an improvement in outcomes. So the upcoming readouts that we're gonna see is an announcement on data from cohort one of their superchoroidal injection in wet AMD patients. This is their phase two aviate trial and it's gonna be presented at this Retinal Society 54th annual scientific meeting uh, later next week. So this is the readout that I was really looking forward to. They're also gonna be presenting some interim data from their cohort two in Q4 of 2021 and they're also gonna be showing us initial data from their altitude study, which is superchoroidal injection of RGX314 in diabetic retinopathy patients. And this is also a huge market. So I think that this would also be a pretty interesting catalyst to hold on to the stock for. I wonder to what extent AbbVie saw this data before taking a position. And I think that the timeliness at which they announced the collaboration is pretty interesting. I would think that they would have waited until after the data readout before they make this announcement, but we heard it before. And to me, I don't know if I'm just reading too much into it, but I imagine that AbbVie may have seen some of this data and were willing to make this collaboration happen as soon as possible. And for that reason, I feel like we should be even more bullish on this readout. And is the reason why I took a position in Clearside after this announcement, because they're gonna see a big increase in their stock price too, I think, if everything goes well. So overall, I think this sets us up very well for a pretty bullish uh, outcome after we see the data after next week. I'm not sure what I'm gonna do if the data is positive, because I think expectations for the cohort two interim data are gonna be very high if we see a pretty good efficacy readout from cohort one next week. I think more so the supercoroidal diabetic retinopathy readout might lead to another increase in the stock, but I'm gonna to have to assess after we see what happens from the cohort one. So tentatively, I'm still holding on to my position. I added the clear side, and I'm gonna see what happens after next week and decide what to do after that. But that was the nice announcement we heard from Regenix Bio and Abby, and I'm looking forward to that readout, and it's coming pretty soon. So if you wanna take a position, uh, now's your chance. The next story I want to talk about is the top-line data that we heard from the Derby and Oaks trial that Apellus announced. And here's what the press release said. Apellus announces top-line results, and whenever they say announces and they don't say reports positive data, you always have to wonder about it. But here it is overall pretty positive in my opinion, at least from the press release. 
And what they say is that they announced top-line results from Phase 3 Derby and Oaks studies in geographic atrophy and plans to submit NDA to FDA in the first half of 2022. So what happened here is that Oaks met the primary endpoint for both monthly and every other month treatment with Pegsatacaplan, demonstrating a significant reduction in GA lesion growth of 22% and 16% respectively compared to the pooled sham at 12 months. Derby, however, did not meet the primary endpoint of GA lesion growth, showing a reduction of only 12% and 11% with monthly and every other month treatment respectively compared to pooled sham at 12 months. So this is an outcome that I really didn't expect. Like I mentioned in my previous video, I thought that the efficacy was not gonna be a problem and that the real question was gonna be on the safety, especially the new exudation safety. The company goes on to say that in a pre-specified analysis of the combined studies, Pegsatacaplan decreased GA lesion growth in patients with extrafoveal lesions at baseline by 26% and 23% with monthly and every other month treatment respectively. And then they say here that favorable safety profile occurred in both studies with new onset exudations occurring in 6%, 4.1%, and 2.4% of patients in the combined Pegsatacaplan monthly, every other month, and sham groups respectively. So according to their definition here, safety was very favorable compared to what we saw in the Philly study. So that is very bullish for the company. But with the efficacy and the discrepancy between the meeting of the primary endpoints is relatively confusing. So it leaves investors without knowing exactly what the path to approval is going to look like. And some people have compared this situation to the Biogen aducanumab situation, which I can see the similarities to. One study was positive, one study was negative. Here, I think the path to approval is probably more clear given that the p-values were pretty close to being below 0.05. For the monthly group, it was 0.0528, and every other month was 0.075. I think that you know the FDA could probably look past that and make a case for why approval makes sense, or at least Apellis can make a case for why approval makes sense. But it's interesting to me that they focused here on extrafoveal lesions, and they mentioned that extrafoveal lesions decreased by so much and I don't know to what extent it matters that extrafoveal lesions had this big increase when you would expect that the total amount of lesion growth is what matters so I thought that was kind of weird for them to bring up but you know it is what it is so a couple of the perspectives I wanted to share here is the combined amount of lesion growth reduction is actually only 14 percent with the every other month and 17% with the monthly. And this is actually quite a big decline from what we saw in the Philly trial. And I'm showing the data here. They had this in their presentation from when they gave the press release. And so I'm showing the combined mean change in growth of lesions, the total growth, not extrafoveal or intrafoveal. But we see here that 17% at one year and 14% at one year in the either the monthly or the every other month. But if we compare that to Philly, and now I'm pulling that up on the screen here, in the Philly trial, they had a huge effect here. The monthly group declined by 30% and the every other month by 20%. So we're getting like a 40% reduction in effect when they increase the sample size. 
And I don't know to what extent the FDA is going to wonder whether or not that's enough to warrant approval, because the FDA not only has a mandate to approve safe drugs, but they also have a mandate to approve drugs that are efficacious. So is this enough to meet that standard? I'm not sure. The company seems pretty positive on this, but I feel like every company that has some kind of mixed data will argue in favor of the FDA being bullish on it. So I'm not really sure what that's going to look like. The company also didn't mention anything on dropouts, and they also didn't talk about visual acuity. And I've talked about before how BCVA isn't a great metric of uh, necessarily good visual acuity in these studies because the lesion might not be in the fovea, which is the part of the eye that would affect BCVA. So, you know, to what extent does BCVA matter? I think it's important for us to actually see it. My impression is that it was unchanged as well. Otherwise, they would have shared the data with us and, you know, gloated about how their treatment also affected BCVA. But we didn't see that. Is that going to matter too much to the FDA? I'm not really sure. And then another thing is they changed their definition of what would be called a new exudation during this trial. And do we know to what extent the FDA is going to be okay with that? I'm not sure. They may have talked about this before and there's something that I could have missed, but I think that it is something to be mindful of. And overall, I think the takeaway is that we don't know how the FDA is going to look at this package of data and whether or not they're going to recommend approval or not. And the FDA in 2021 has been very, very confusing to biopharma. We've seen a lot of stuff that doesn't fit with former FDA administrations. So I think for us, the risk here is that we just don't know how the FDA is going to react and whether or not the chances of approval are very high. So given this news, the stock dropped, I think by 50% or so. It was trading around 60 before the data and it went down to around 30. And that's where it's hovering now. The real winner from all of this was Iveric. Iveric almost doubled in price after this news. And I think it just makes them more of a front runner than Apellus because of the uncertainty with approval here. Another sympathy play that I mentioned and some other people have talked about was buying Catalyst Bio in anticipation of positive news for Apellus. And we did see a spike in Catalyst Bio that was pretty brief and it's trading around $5 now. And personally, I wouldn't hold on to Catalyst Bio any longer because management has been such a brutal friend to investors. So that happened with Catalyst. So for me, I'm not going to be taking a position in any of these companies. I uh, was happy to watch on the sidelines, and I think a lot of the people that had calls or puts at kind of the extremes of the strike prices got killed because Apellus only dropped to around 30 and didn't drop to like $5, which some people were thinking about. So it is what it is, but um, exciting data readout, I got to tell you. And with that, I want to talk about sort of the main story of the show today, and I want to talk about four different oncology companies relatively briefly, but... They are Oncturnal, Curis, BioXL, and PDS Biotechnology. And all four of these companies have an upcoming readout with their oncology products. So I wanted to talk about what I'm thinking and where I think the play would be if we were to take an investment. So to start off, talking about Oncturnal, the price sits at $4.4 a share, giving them a market cap of $200 million. Their Q2 net loss was $7 million, and they sit on $110 million of current assets with only $6 million in current liabilities. And Oncturnal is targeting ROR1 for cancer treatment. They have an antibody called Sermtuzumab, and they're also developing an ROR1 CAR-T therapy. 
They also have a molecule called TK216, and they're looking at treating Ewing sarcoma with that molecule. But the real exciting part of Oncternal is their Sermtuzumab antibody. And they've so far seen positive data in MCL, CLL, as well as HER2 negative breast cancer. But the thing is with Oncternal right now is that we're currently just seeing continual data updates. So they're treating patients, and as they're getting that data, they're showing us the updates. But a lot of the positive data that we've seen in MCL, CLL, and to some extent HER2 negative breast cancer, it's already priced into the stock. So I'm concerned that until Oncternal moves into new trials that are further along, say a phase two or phase three trial, we're not gonna see a lot of upward motion in the stock price. So I wanna compare data from ASH of 2020 to what we saw earlier in the year at AACR of 2021. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that when companies give continual updates that don't over exceed expectations, oftentimes the stock won't respond in a positive way. And this is something that we saw with Trillium. And I think Oncternal is kind of a perfect company to use as an example for that. So at ASH 2020, people were very surprised to see this data and how well Sermtuzumab did in combination with Abrutinib in MCL. And they, they show here comparing Sermtuzumab plus Abrutinib to single agent Abrutinib. And we see here that at a similar timeline, progression-free survival does a lot better than just single agent Abrutinib. Now at AACR 2021, we're on a longer time frame here because the data has been collected for a longer time. And progression-free survival is around the same. The median is still not reached. And again, it's still doing a lot better than single agent abrutinib. So it's still positive data, but it's pretty much in line with what expectations would be. In terms of the objective response rate, we're still looking at around the 80s. Uh, the complete response rate goes down a little bit, which isn't too big of a surprise, I would say. But basically, this is in line with what expectations are. For CLL, on the other hand, we see here that data is also relatively in line with MCL in terms of the efficacy that we're seeing. So the median progression-free survival in treatment-naive patients that have CLL was not reached at ASH of 2020. And here, the combination of CLL parts 1 and 2, progression-free survival has still not been reached, and now we're up to 22.1 months. So it's still positive data, but it's pretty much in line with expectations. We would be very shocked to see that all of a sudden progression-free survival had been reached at just one or two extra months. So good data, but not necessarily mind-blowing. When it comes to TK216 as well, comparing the ASH 2020 data, we see here that in the recommended phase two dose, which is cohort nine and expansion, we have an objective response rate of 9% two complete responders with eight stable disease. If we look at the data from AACR of 2021, in cohort nine and expansion, we see that there are two complete responders, one partial responder, 11 stable disease, and 17 progressive disease. So this is a overall response rate of 9.7%. So it's pretty much in line with what we saw at ASH 2020. So it's good data, it's in line with before, but it's not sort of above and beyond expectations. Now, breast cancer is one data set from Oncternal that I think did impress because we didn't really see clinical data until earlier this year. What I think the objective response rate was was 57%, I believe, 
and they saw a number of cancer patients respond very well to sermtuzumab here. So this data set I think is very exciting and the update in this data is going to be impactful for the stock. But we're not expecting that in Q4 of this year. So here's the anticipated milestones for internal for Q4. We're expecting an update from MCL, CLL. We're gonna be seeing preclinical data in additional ROR1 expressing tumors. There's also gonna be an update in TK216 in Ewing sarcoma. And so all of those programs, I feel like the data is gonna be pretty much good, but it's not gonna be able to blow up expectations like they did in ASH of 2020. Now, the one indication that I'm excited about is the breast cancer update. And unfortunately, we're not really expecting to see a clinical update from that in Q4. They say it's fully enrolled, but there's no real timeline given here. If we were to see it in Q4, then maybe there is a lot more upside in the stock. But because of the reasons that I outlined before, I'm just gonna leave my position alone. I'm holding a small position of around 75 shares, and I'm down on the position because since the AACR update, and I'm showing the chart up here, and AACR I believe was in April or so, the stock's been declining since then. And it's because we're not seeing a lot of development past MCL, CLL, or this Ewing sarcoma indication. So it's for these reasons that I'm just gonna hold on to my position as it is, and until the company becomes more defined, and it's probably gonna happen in 2022, I'm comfortable just sitting here and waiting. But that's Ongternal, and I wanna move on now to Curis. Curis is trading at $8 a share, giving them a market cap of $730 million, their Q2 2021 net loss was 10 million bucks, and they're sitting on $150 million in current assets with $8 million in current liabilities. And Curious is interesting because they're targeting a novel molecule called IRAC4 for the treatment of non-Hodgkin lymphoma as well as acute myeloid leukemia. And this compound is called CA4948. They also have a molecule targeting a protein called Vista, and they're looking in a bunch of different solid tumors, and this molecule is called CI8993. And now the company has showed positive data in AML or MDS, and what I'm showing here is the efficacy specifically in patients that have a targeted mutation that you would expect to respond to an IRAC4 inhibitor. So IRAC4 is associated with the spliceosome, and what they looked to recruit here are some patients that have mutations in either FLT3 or in the spliceosome. And what they're showing is that in these four patients, they all happen to have an improvement in the percentage of blasts, which is what you want in a treatment for AML, when they were treated with CA4948. Now the other interesting thing here is that in patients that don't necessarily have a spliceosome or FLT3 mutation, they also saw an improvement in a decent portion of patients. So nine out of 11 evaluable patients achieved a tumor reduction or maintained counts in the normal range. And normal range would be below 5% of blasts. So it suggests here that IRAC4 targeting can be a viable method of treatment potentially in AML, even in patients that don't necessarily have an activating mutation in IRAC4. IRAC4 has been tried from other companies and oftentimes 
either there was not efficacy or there was a safety problem. But for some reason, Curis's molecule seems to do pretty well here. It's for this reason that Curis is unique and why there's so much excitement behind the company. So where we're at now, similar to Longternal, is we're seeing data updates in AML and MDS in patients that have been treated here. Now, I think we're more early in terms of seeing the data updates in Curis. So we're not at that stage like we were with Trillium and like we kind of are getting to with Longternal, where the company is just sort of floundering, showing only data updates in existing trials, and they're not moving on to new indications or trying to move the current trial indications into later phase trials. So I think there's still a lot of potential for Curis and is the reason why I'm still holding a nice position. Uh, the other reason why I'm excited about them is they're not only gonna be showing an update at year end of 2021 for AML and MDS, but they're going to be showing some safety data from their VISTA program. And this is gonna be in solid tumors, I believe. I'll double check that, but I'm pretty sure they were looking at solid tumors for VISTA. But the VISTA target is interesting because I believe it was J&J &J originally had the molecule and they stopped it because safety was so bad at the first cohort of patients that received a really low dose. So Curis is trying it in their population and I think it's gonna be a high risk, high reward play that if they happen to see good data, the stock could increase significantly based on this. And if it's a failure, I don't think we're gonna to see too much downside. So it's for that reason as well why I'm holding a position. And Curis is pretty confident that they're gonna be able to get rapid approval for their IRAC molecule, specifically in patients that have AML or MDS that also have a spliceosome mutation. So they've clarified before that they're gonna be trying to discern whether or not that patient population is really going to benefit from this molecule. And so far it seems that way, but Curis is gonna to have to do another trial potentially to see whether or not that's true, or they might get rapid approval concurrently with doing this trial in order to prove to the FDA that there is gonna be a beneficial effect here. So it's for these reasons that I like Curis. The next company I wanna talk about is BioXL, ticker symbol BTAI. They're trading at around $30 a share, giving them a market cap of 850 million. Their Q2 net loss was $27 million and they're sitting at around 275 million in current assets with only 12 million in current liabilities. Now the company is more of an AI driven novel target discovery company. And they presented a bunch of insights into their platform at a recent R&D day that they had. I think it was really only a week ago, but the molecules that have come from that technology so far, one is BXCL501, and they've been able to see really positive data in agitation associated with all sorts of different CNS disorders. And that program is actually pretty far along and is the reason why I initially took a position and is you know one where I probably should have exited with those profits, but I got a little greedy and it held on to the position because I thought we would have seen more upside in some of those readouts. And now, I also think that there could be some more upside from their cancer indication in patients treated with BXCL701. So that's what I'm gonna focus on in this talk, but there are other reasons to hold BioXL if you're bullish on the agitation assets, but for reasons that I'll talk about in a second, I'm not thrilled about holding them through the PDUFA. So the company published data in March of this year on BXCL701. This is very early data, and it's in patients that have adenocarcinoma or 
small cell neuroendocrine prostate cancer. So this is metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer patients. And what they showed here in a few different doses, they did 0.4 milligrams every day, 0.6 milligrams every day, and then 0.6 milligrams split dose every day. And what they showed here basically was that the 0.6 milligrams every day patients had a pretty bad uh, safety profile. And what they found is that when they split that dose into 0.3 milligrams given twice daily, that the side effects were actually quite manageable. So the company here, I think, decided to focus more on the 0.6 milligram split dose cohort and proceed with the trial. And now they also measured efficacy in this early published data, and they showed here that in these difficult-to-treat patients, the overall response rate was 1 out of 10 patients with a disease control rate of 5 out of 10 patients. And I'm extrapolating this because they weren't explicit on how many patients were valuable, but if I just did the math here, that's kind of what we get to. Now, the company gave a more in-depth update at ESMO that just happened like a week ago. And so where they're at now is that 32 eligible metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer patients received 0.3 twice daily on days 1 through 14 of a 21-day cycle plus 200 milligrams of pembrolizumab administered intravenously on day 1 and every subsequent 21 days. So this is a combination therapy trying to see whether or not the drug BXCL701 given on top of Keytruda is going to improve outcomes. So 23 patients were available based on this ESMO data, and they said here that six of those patients achieved a complete response, and that all responders experienced a decrease in tumor size from baseline. They say here that in patients with measurable disease, which were 19 patients, resist defined partial response was 16%. And so if we extract from that, it looks like three patients of the 19 achieved a partial response. They also say here that the disease control rate was 63%, although I try to understand what this equation was. Partial response plus stable disease plus non-complete response divided by non-progressive disease uh, a little confusing to me, so I'm not really sure what to make of this. I thought that the disease control rate was the complete responders, partial responders, and stable disease divided by the whole pa valuable patient population in the trial, but I, I could be wrong. I could have been looking at this totally wrong this whole time, but anyway, it is what it is. And then the company goes on to say what historical data was for Keytruda alone in this patient population, and they say that the Objective response rate is 5% with a disease control rate of 12% and PSA 50 of 6%. So it looks here that the data is looking pretty promising in this uh, patient population. They also mentioned the safety data here, which looks pretty good. In terms of a kind of difficult to treat patient population, the safety is definitely manageable and I think bodes well for continuing the trial. The stock didn't move up too much on this news, unfortunately, and I'm not sure why exactly. I think that the oncology part of the BioXL story is being undervalued right now, and I'm still going to hold on to my position in anticipation of the next efficacy readout for BXCL701. So they showed the cold tumor data here, and they're going to be presenting data in solid hot tumors in a basket trial 
and this readout is still expected to come in the second half of this year. So I'm gonna be looking to exit the position mostly because I don't wanna hold BioXL through the PDUFA date of BXCL501, which is taking place on January 5th of 2022. And I just, I don't wanna be involved in the risky nature of what is gonna come from that PDUFA decision or whether or not in December they're gonna get some kind of letter from the FDA saying that there's deficiencies. So I wanna avoid that and try to get out uh, with a decent profit or at least come out flat. So I'm gonna hold on to the position and hopefully that this solid tumor readout is gonna to lead to an increase in the stock. And I think the data that they saw in, this, in the cold tumor bodes pretty well for a good potential efficacy readout for the hot tumors. So we'll see what happens, but that's my take on the cancer programs of BioXL. Now, the last company I want to talk about is PDS Biotechnology, ticker symbol PDSB. They're trading at now $16.56 a share, giving them a market cap of $470 million. Their Q2 net loss was only $5 million, and they're sitting at $77 million in current assets with only $4 million in current liabilities. And this company has been getting a lot of attention on Twitter lately. They are kind of a huge turnaround story where I think before this year in 2020, they were trading at like a dollar or something like that. And they moved up significantly on all of the news that they've been giving from success with their Versimmune program and specifically their molecule PDS0101 in various different cancers. So the technology that they're trying to leverage here is called Versimmune. And what this technology does is it basically activates T cells. But what PDSB is trying to do is take peptides that they know HPV expresses, incorporate it into their Versamine platform, and treat it in combination with other traditional cancer therapies in hopes of activating T cells that will be primed because the Versamine will have been taken up by antigen presenting cells. And the goal is to hopefully get a more than expected T cell response in these patients. This is kind of a convoluted way of explaining it, but their main compound is PDS0101, and they're looking at first-line recurrent head and neck cancer, advanced HPV-associated malignancies, as well as stage 2B or 4A cervical cancer. And their corporate presentation says that 43,000 patients are diagnosed with HPV-associated cancers annually in the U.S. alone. So pretty decent patient population, and given that other immuno-oncology molecules Garner price tag of around $120,000 per year. Pretty big total addressable market. Now, PDSB's technology revolves around this Versimmune technology. And what this is, is a molecule that acts as kind of a micelle. And if anybody's seen this before or has read about sort of lipid monolayers, what these lipid monolayers are able to do, and Forms of these occur naturally in the human body in the form of exosomes or vesicles, but the companies created this proprietary type of fatty acid coat such that they can produce antigens that are known to be expressed in different cancers. And with HPV, I think it's a perfect model for them because HPV has a very predictable expression pattern of different peptides. And what PDSB has done is they've isolated epitopes from that, put it into their hydrophobic molecule, injected it subcutaneously into the skin in the hopes that these molecules will be taken up by antigen-presenting cells, 
Those antigen-presenting cells will process the antigens and express them on their surface such that T cells will then recognize them and be primed to attack cells that express those epitopes of those antigens. And in the case of HPV-associated cancers, it'll be all of the tumor cells that happen to express those proteins that are specifically caused by HPV infection. So that's kind of the goal of the technology here. And some of the benefits here are that it's a subcutaneous injection, so they don't have to go through a lengthy intravenous uh, infusion, which is pretty common with different immuno-oncology candidates, even though I'll just say that the uh, technology is being given in combination with different immuno-oncology treatments, but the fact that this isn't an additional infusion, I think, bodes very well. The company is really hoping to see an effect in different sorts of cancers associated with HPV. And so the main readout that I'm looking forward to is from this phase two trial evaluating the combination of PDS0101 plus Keytruda in the treatment of HPV 16 positive metastatic or recurrent head and neck cancer patients. And so this trial is called the Versatile002 trial and it's treatment of patients that have HPV 16 positive head and neck cancers whose cancer is spread or returned. And these are both patients that are checkpoint inhibitor naive or checkpoint inhibitor refractory. It's an open label phase two study with an expectation of 96 participants. They're, they're not close to that just yet, but they are moving ahead and they're starting to get pretty good recruitment. And so just to give a, a rundown on how it's gonna happen, Pembrolizumab is administered via IV infusion followed by a subcutaneous injection of PDS0101 five times throughout the course of the study. And then they say that Pembrolizumab monotherapy will be administered every cycle. There is not a combination treatment until disease progression or up to 35 cycles. And so some of the news we saw in September is that the lead-in safety cohort enrollment was completed on September 9th of this year, and this allows them to further continue to enroll patients so they can get to around, hopefully, that 95 level. And then they also say that preliminary results are expected in either Q4 of this year or Q1 of 2022. And so just to give a primer on the data, they gave an update at ASCO of 2021, and this update showed that in CPI-naive patients, they got an overall response rate of 5 out of 6 patients, which is very positive. They also saw a nice response in CPI-refractory patients, and the objective responses were 5 out of 12 patients, and they said that 7 out of 12 showed a reduction in tumor. But my expectation here is that, or the reason why there's a difference here is that I think two of them might not have seen like a 30% reduction in the tumor to be called an objective response. So this bodes very well for the company and is the reason why I think the update is probably going to be pretty positive that we see in Q4 of this year. And similar to Curious, I think that we're pretty early in the data update. So the potential for this kind of good effect to have an effect on the stock, I think is there and is the reason why I have a position in the company and why I think it bodes very well to holding on to the position through this readout. The company has other trials going on. They also have a phase two study that's a triple combination of PDS0101 plus this Bintrafis Alpha and M9241, and this is an advanced HPV-associated cancers. They're hoping to complete enrollment in Q1 of 2022 and if we look at the ASCO 2021 update, they got 71% of patients that had objective responses, which I think bodes very well. 
compared to some of the other data that we saw. And I have here the Bintrafisp Alpha data as a monotherapy in HPV-associated cancers. For CPI-naive, the objective response rate or overall response rate was 30% as interim data and worked out to be 28% in uh, final data. So PDSB seeing 71% of patients having an objective response uh, this early into the data, I think bodes very well for this treatment and is why I'm excited about it. The company is also doing a phase two study in cervical cancer, and this is the combination of PDS0101 as well as chemo radiation in these patients. And we're expecting preliminary data in the first half of 2022. So it's for this, these reasons why I'm excited about PDSB and why I think it's interesting to hold on to them into this Q4 readout. The company's price has rallied quite a bit this year, um, but the fact that they're still only at around a $500 million market cap still makes me think that there's gonna be some upside. And if they can see positive data here, I do think they could revolve around a $1 billion market cap eventually. I might add to my position a little bit as we get into October, just to have a pretty well-established position before the data, and then kind of see how it goes as we get through to 2022. But I like the company and think that they're gonna see some good things in the next little while. So that's my take on a few oncology readouts we're gonna see. There's more that are coming up that I've touched on. I tweeted recently about Checkpoint Therapeutics that has their Cosabellumab readout coming out. I have a nice position in them. I think it's gonna be a really positive readout and the stock's gonna see a huge upside. Cariofarm is also gonna see a readout with their Siendo top line results. I think this is gonna be a big mover for the company as well, which is why I'm holding on to it. I've done quite a shopping spree with my portfolio, so I don't have too much cash left over, but I think KPTI, I'm going to hold on to them through this readout and look to exit. I just don't see their molecule getting as much adoption as we'd like to see in order to warrant a big increase in the price. So I'm kind of cautious about that, but I think Siendo is gonna be positive. And then there's also my CD47 position. So I'm still holding on to Shattuck. I mentioned that I took a position there. And ALX Oncology, they have some readouts coming out as well. And that's kind of the sum of the oncology part of my portfolio. More short term though, we're gonna see that Regenix Bio clear side update by October 1st. And we're also gonna see an update from uh, YMTX and that's for Parkinson's disease. And they said that the data is gonna be coming in the fall. So I'm gonna be looking for that as well. Some other updates that I'm looking forward to in Q4. Um, Q4 is gonna be a huge biotech quarter, I gotta say, especially for my portfolio. I got Madrigal, SIO Gene Therapies, CYCN, FTMD, as well as Selective Biosciences. I haven't taken a position yet in Selective Biosciences, but I still do think that this readout is gonna be a pretty good mover for the stock. So I still have to take a position there, but I'm pretty excited for Q4. To do a quick portfolio wrap up here, so just to mention the positions I took, I added uh, Checkpoint Therapeutics here for a 5% position. Clearside, I have a 5% position now. Shattuck, I'm looking at around 3 or 4%. And now Cyclerion, I added on that. I My original position was in like late 2020, and I finally tripled down on it. So I'm looking at around 8% on that. And I think after the me last readout, I'm probably gonna exit and then decide what to do from there. But the Alzheimer's readout could be very interesting in 2022, so I'm gonna be looking towards them 
probably in 2022 to re-enter a position, assuming that the MELAS is positive. So I'll assess once we see the MELAS data. But overall, I'm looking at around 5% year to date, which is pretty, you know, I don't wanna brag, but I'm doing a little bit better than the XBI and quite a bit better than ARCG. I think we've seen a deflation in some of those CRISPR names that has propped up ARCG so much. And the reason for my success so far has been the massive run-up in PDSB, massive run-up in Regenix Bio, as well as Arenia, which I would love it if anybody could tell me why Arenia is now moving up so much on basically no news. You know, I think it's probably due to the prescriptions, but it beats me. A lot of people are trying to say that there's a buyout in the works happening, but I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that that's actually true, but uh, I'll take it. I think also ALX Oncology has been doing really well, and that's been helping my portfolio quite a bit. And this is in spite of Biogen getting crushed, which I'm holding a pretty decent position on, as well as some of the smaller things as well. So Madrigal hasn't been doing great. KPTI is still doing really poorly. BTAI and Oncternal are still doing pretty poorly as well, even though I'm holding, at least for Oncternal, a pretty small position. But BTAI, this has been hurting me quite a bit. So yeah, that's what we're looking at. So overall, pretty happy, and hopefully we can start to approach the levels of the SPX 500 or the NASDAQ as we kind of suss out these Q4 readouts. And in terms of my available cash, I only have a 5% cash position left, and I'm thinking I'm going to be adding for YMTX and potentially KPTI. Um, and this is after all of the purchases I've recently made. If some of the readouts come out and I can sell the, the stock in those companies, then that will make me feel a little bit better, but I'm pretty heavily invested right now. So we'll see what happens. But I want to wrap it up there. Thank you all so much for all your attention. Uh, let me know what you think. Let me know if you think I'm off on any of my analyses of these companies. And I look forward to chatting with you in the comments below or on Twitter. And you can send me an email at matthewlapoire at gmail.com or tweet at me at matthewlapoire. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up there. But thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.